I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show i wonder how much of how much correlation versus causation there is between people in new york traditionally having a really close relationship with their books Mm mm-hmm and the the number of windowless walls in apartments. <laughs> so many, so many, so many damn books. Uh, welcome to the show, John Hodgman. Thank you. Hello, uh, I'm Christopher. I'm Drew, and this is so many damn books. John Hodgman. Um, if you're not aware who he is, I and you listen to this show, I'd be surprised. How's that even possible? Yeah, we talk about your work a lot. Oh, hang on. I got a Google News alert. You just mentioned me on this show. <laughs> <laughs> you are the author of um, the Areas of My Expertise series. Yes. And um, are also a performer and daily show correspondent sometimes and Man About Town, as well as the yeah. author of the most recent paperback release and uh, Vacation Land. All of these things are true. And I can even see, for those of you listening uh, who are not in this room, <laughs> which which is probably more than the people who are in this room. <laughs> we, we hope. This, uh, I'm, I'm here in uh, uh, So Many Damn Books headquarters, mm-hmm. where there are so many damn books, and yes. they're all beautifully displayed, and I've, I feel like I'm catching up with a lot of old friends, <laughs> seeing a lot of names that I recognize, some that I don't. And I even noticed you have a box set of complete, of the complete world knowledge series. My first three books. Over oh yes. There. So that and you and you and you tastefully put it toward, sort of toward the end, <laughs> so, <laughs> to, to convince me that you didn't just drag it out. <laughs> it's always been there. So thank you very much for having me. What a pleasure. Well, I want to tell you about tell them all about the drink that I made for you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which I'm calling uh, the Hodgemane. H-O-D-G-M-A-I-N-E. Yes. All right. I think I might put a dash. Sure, you can do it. You invented it. <laughs> um, and and I'm drinking it on an empty stomach, so I'm uh, forgive me for intruding. Go on. <laughs> uh, and it's a uh, it's well blueberry uh, syrup is where I started because um, it is the state fruit of Maine. Um, there's a yeah. lot of blueberries up there. Yes, that's true. And Vacation Land is uh, the name of is a it's a nickname for the state of Maine. Maine, an ironic one, but yeah, <laughs> a true one all the same. And uh, so I start with blueberry syrup, and then I have gin and vermouth, um, lemon, and some lavender bitters on top. And it's made of very 
fuchsia, I would say, yeah. colored drink. When you first described it to me, I, I in my brain, you're like, it's it's a gin, vermouth, blueberry syrup. And at that point, I was like, uh, to quote, to paraphrase uh, Samuel Clemens, a good martini spoiled. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, don't say that because it's a terrible dad joke. (laughs) It's rude. And then I tasted it. It's actually quite good. I've not had, I mean, as a sometime resident of the state of Maine more recently, which is what the book is about to some degree. I've been I've had a lot of blueberry flavored garbage foisted, <laughs> yeah, foisted on me, and this was this is good though I like it. Well, I think yeah. a key here is that it's real blueberry syrup. Like I made the, I think that that uh, it's not like fake in any way. You made it? Yeah. You made the blueberry syrup? Yeah. What's going on in this? It's <laughs> <laughs> an excellent question. <laughs> When I was, um, I guess I was 19 and I was in college and I was studying, this is a, this is relates to something, trust me, (laughs) not just blueberry syrup going to my head, that is also happening. But I was studying, uh, 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 Jorge Luis Borges was my favorite writer at at the time and still one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And I had convinced the Spanish department, uh, I had applied for a grant to go to travel and mm. I wanted and I got the money a thousand dollars to mm. go to Buenos Aires and really I just wanted to go to Buenos Aires and hang around <laughs> what I did yeah but ostensibly it was to research the you know Borges is from Argentina but mm-hmm. he was never not really considered an Argentine national writer um in part because he was so worldly and cosmopolitan mm-hmm. in his in his work in part because he learned English before he learned Spanish, at least as a reading and written language. Oh wow! And um, and in part because Argentina, Argentine nationalism, which was definitely a real thing, mm-hmm. did not like him, and you know the Perón regime fired him from the director of being the director of the national uh, the national library and appointed him a regional poultry inspector because he was not <laughs> sufficiently pro. Peronista. Okay. Um, and so I was there to sort of talk to, you know, boots on the ground, as it were, or in my case, converses, on the ground, uh, on, this, on the cosmopolitan streets of Buenos Aires, talking to people about the influence, or if there was any. Mm-hmm. And I met a guy named Osvaldo Ferrari, who was a guy who had come out with a number of books called Dialogos, which were interviews with Borges that he had done Towards the end of Borges' life, when he was still in Buenos Aires, his, he had moved to Switzerland, I believe, and died there, but he was still there. And I went to this guy's house. All these interviews were were, were uh, all in Spanish. They had never been translated. Mm-hmm. And his whole house was like this one, was filled with books, but they were all his own books. Whoa. And they were all different editions of these interviews that he had done with Borges. Wow. And I immediately took a disliking to this person (laughs) because because he seemed to have done nothing but feast on on the bones of this dying writer (laughs) and and translate that into some literary reputation for himself. Mm. And we had this conversation, and I had uh, I had Spanish at the time. I can't speak it anymore. I just, you know, it was a, uh, anyway. We I did my best mm-hmm. 
But then he kind of drifted into English a little bit. And I said, well, before we go, do you mind if I take your picture? And he goes, no, not at all. I said, okay. So I took his picture and he goes, I will do one more and I will make like I am talking. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And those of you listening along can't see what he did, but he, these guys, I can show you what he literally did was he sat there and he went, (laughs) <laughs> and he gestured and he and he moved he put his mouth into this weird rictus like, and, uh, that did not did not correlate to any 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 word form that mm. could be thought of and i was taking this guy's pictures as he was pretending it was just part of his routine that he would pretend <laughs> to talk for the photo for the newspaper or whatever it is and i'm like this guy is a big phony yeah <laughs> that sounds like um he was making the voice or the shape of um, like Charlie Brown. Teacher. Charlie Brown teacher. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. It really was like, if wah, you want to know wah, what it looked wah. like, it's like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> um, wow. Well, that's all the time we have. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to talk about, um, it seems like you started with your three books of your, fake facts and yes. then and then this memoir and essays and there was and it seems like th- that's two, those are two very different modes that you were in but that's only if you were following you through your books you know you had this in-between time where you were performing these things yeah and i'm just curious like what it was like to you had this other life of performance in between and I wondered if you missed writing or if you were always like doing this because you thought you'd write a book about it or no, I mean, I didn't think that I would. I, um, so yeah, I wrote, I mean the, the thumbnail for those of you who don't know me personally, and probably if you're listening to this, we've met three times, I bet probably, (laughs) but you know, I wrote, I wrote a book called the areas of my expertise, which was a very arch and sort of absurdist humor book of fake facts before fake news was what it is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, It, you know, but it was very, very light, silly humor. As I say, absurdist sort of Monty Python-esque humor, uh, imitating a book of trivia. Um, But instead of a list of the nine U.S. presidents who, you know, or like the nine leaders who died while having sex, Mm -hmm. it was the nine U.S. presidents who had hooks for hands. Right. (laughs) And I would make up all these fake stories and fake history and that put me on to The Daily Show and started a very implausible career on camera. And I was able to follow up bec- with two further books of that to create this one giant total book of complete world knowledge that was totally made up and fake and very arch. And that was my, such as it was, that was my brand. Mm-hmm. And then that, that, the, the la- that last book, That Is All, the third in that series, came out um, in paperback in 2012. And I did a I did. I, I had begun essentially doing my imitation of stand-up comedy. By then, <laughs> doing book tours, and I right. was, you know, performing material from the books without reading them. So I did it as a as a Netflix special. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as twenty thirteen dawned, I was like, I really enjoy the performing, but I'm really out of material at this point because the books are done, and a lot of the a lot of the arguable comedy and that is all and in the special that grew out of it which was called Ragnarok just left Netflix everybody can't ever check it out again <laughs> <laughs> a lot of those stories were based were, were timely in the sense that they're based around the 2012 apocalypse hysteria that was mm-hmm. going 
around at that time. Famously we, happened, as we all know. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. Just about four years later. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2013, I'm like, I can't tell my my ancient Mayan apocalypse jokes anymore. I have to come up with new new things to say and do. And I really, you know, the style of those books and my humor up to that point had been truly like, how can I work a Zeppelin into it? <laughs> What's the most obscure, weird, nerdy reference I can make and build out of that? And I was having a hard time making those jokes anymore. And so here in Brooklyn, I, I took the advice of Mike Brabiglia, a comedian and storyteller who had suggested sometime before that I do a residency at Union Hall where he works out his new material. And mm-hmm. so I did. And, and so starting in January of 2013 and and, and going until really until um, uh, middle of 2016, I did a first weekly and then monthly secret show called Secret Society mm-hmm. and just gave myself a deadline to say what was on my mind. Because mm. knowing what's on your mind is not as easy as you think. Right. And sometimes you need a deadline to break it out of you. <laughs> and so a lot of the stories that ended up being in vacation land came from that period of time because what I realized as I was doing my my comedy and was that I wasn't making the, the, all the phony John Hodgman and the, the, the resident expert John Hodgman who was on The Daily Show, later the deranged millionaire who was on The Daily Show and the crazy John Hodgman who was in these books. Mm-hmm. Had kind of gone away, and now it was just true stories from my my life as I was sort of experiencing, uh, you know, the the beginnings, and now the full flower of middle age, and um, that ended up being sort of the the shows that I would take out on the road, mm-hmm. and then eventually became this book, Vacation Land. Do you feel like that character that I mean, like there was the John Hodgman character that you were yeah. referring to, but do you still feel like now that you now you have a different sort of character now that you've put this down in like the vacation land John Hodgman? Like, are you are you realizing that you're making personas with every book? Um, um, sh- no. I mean, it's very possible that that's true, mm-hmm. but I don't realize it. <laughs> you know? uh, I think that you know I, the the Orwell quote, which is mostly about um you know social activism and and social critique mm-hmm. and i'm paraphrasing but you know just it, it 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 takes work to see what's right in front of your nose mm-hmm. is also true about the creative world mm-hmm. and i think that there are times you know for me when i hit upon it took me some time to hit upon this idea of doing this sort of wacky um, funhouse mirror version of both history and contemporary life mm-hmm. by telling fake facts mm-hmm. and being and telling them very straightforwardly mm-hmm. um, and and as deadpan as possible and and in in a way playing on the authority of the straight white man to say whatever he wants to and and get a pass mm-hmm. in order to pass pass across in the books and in the in the Daily Show sort of. Really, I, I hoped to be transgressive and scary ideas you know, <laughs> and funny ideas. In that sense, I knew that I was building a character, and that right. was a fun character to play with and hide behind because that character could be a monster. Right, sort of like a it's like a Colbert sort of when he was doing the rapport. Abs- yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And if you're suggesting that uh, Stephen Colbert stole that idea from no, <laughs> <laughs> I was always if ever a fifth-rate Stephen Colbert, but. <laughs> 
you know, it, it was very much he was, you know, he, he described it as a high status idiot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what he was doing. I mean, there's no question that he was influential upon me because I was watching The Daily Show when he was a correspondent. Mm-hmm. When I joined The Daily Show in 2006, he had not started the rapport, but he was doing that mm-hmm. to some degree. Mm-hmm. And also another huge influence upon me was Christopher Morris, a, a British comedian who created something called Brass Eye. I'm not sure if you ever saw it. No. But it was an imitation news magazine show in England that was... Um, I mean, it really was the areas of my expertise mm-hmm. um, in, in that he was saying the most, re- he was reporting the quote unquote news. One of the shows, each show had a theme and one of the themes was drugs. <laughs> and he was reporting on a fictitious drug that he claimed was sweeping <laughs> England called cake. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was a pill about the size of a throw pillow <laughs> or a small throw, like a yellow pill about, about the so size of holding it. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the hallmarks of brass eye and, and you know, this would have been in the late nineties, I would guess. Mm-hmm. And so very contemporaneous with what the daily show was doing with its interviews of people. Mm-hmm. But he would go to public figures in England and, and interview Uh-oh. them and say, we're doing this show about this drug called cake here is a tablet <laughs> what what do you want to say about it yeah and the and the you know the celebrities would be like they would look at the camera very sincerely and hold this thing and go this has to stop <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing. just it was this incredible you know send up of news hysteria and celebrity sense of obligation mm-hmm. to comment on things they know nothing about it was very much predictive of twitter in that regard (laughs) yeah so i mean the the idea had been out there before but the idea of being a character felt very natural to me and but when that when that went away it's you know like at at, i remember sitting with our mutual friend john roderick Mm -hmm. a dear friend and the musician and writer and artist and everything else at little purity on 7th Avenue in Park Slope, New York, near where I live. So now I guess you can find me, weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> and just uh, on the January after the world did not end in 2012 and not knowing what to do. Like, it wasn't just that I lost my material. It was that I did not feel like doing that character anymore. Mm-hmm. And I didn't I, and I didn't know what to replace it with. Mm. And the instincts that had carried me through probably you know at that point a dozen years of creative life if not more mm-hmm. from McSweeney's to the areas of my expertise to the daily show to everything else I just you know there are times when you just don't know what's next mm-hmm. and that that I, I think is true now like to me it was to just become myself in the most candid way possible um, but it's definitely the case that I look back at I look back at the pictures of me just on this past book tour, mm-hmm. where I'm wearing, I'm wearing a a weird, uh, a weird dad baseball hat with a Bangor and Aristic Railroad Safety Award emblem on it, and shorts, <laughs> and an orange bowling shirt, and I'm like, oh, look at that dumb costume I'm wearing. I guess, I guess on, sincere John Hodgman is also some kind of a clown, so, but it wasn't my intent at that time. I see. I see. I'm, I'm curious to know. I saw. 
uh, it wasn't one of the Secret Society shows, but you did a, a stint at Under the Radar Festival, the public theater, in yeah. January 2014. And the show was called I Stole Your Dad. Yeah. And that story ends up in this collection. Yeah, I needed all my material. <laughs> well, I'm wondering how... I'm thinking about it a little bit from the theatrical standpoint, but how did that material transition from the stage to the page? Was it that you you worked it and you got it to a place and then you're just like, bleh, here it is on the page? Or did you find that you had to shift it for a different audience? Well, the you know, so the Secret Society shows, as I say, began in 2013. By 2014... I had this show called I Stole Your Dad, which had been which had come out of all of those mm-hmm. those evenings at Union Hall. And none of it was written down. So for me that wow. was I mean, I had I would make notes about I you know, sort of gestures and ideas and moments and then assemble it on stage. And wow. then uh and then I recorded them, but I didn't often go back. Mm-hmm. But I remembered enough of the details that I could tell the story again and again. And I and by the time you saw it at Under the Radar, I had been touring it around. Right. So I knew the stories very well at that point, how to tell them. But they had never really thoroughly been written down. So that was an exciting new, that was an exciting change. Because what I had done before was I wrote, 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 wrote. And then I adapted that stuff to perform on book tour. Mm. Now I was just t- talking, 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 talking. And it really wasn't until 20, let's see, what year is it now? 18. Right. So it really wasn't until the spring of 2017, the first half of 2017, when I really wrote the book. Wow. To come out in the fall of 2017, because turnaround is fast now. Mm. <laughs> um, I thought that I could do it in a compressed time period. And I could, because I had, I had all these stories. Right. I didn't necessarily imagine that I would include that particular story. I stole your dad in this book until I realized, oh, I, I have, I need everything. <laughs> <laughs> like if I just did the Vacation Land was the show that I developed after the I Stole Your Dad show, mm-hmm. and that was the one that felt really had a beginning, middle, and end that I think could I could adapt to a book. But when I started writing that one out, I'm like, oh, I need a lot more material. I have to go back and grab all that other stuff from I Stole Your Dad, which I had never written down. Right. Mm-hmm. So for the stories like the I stole your dad's story that that is, I'm not going to say it's verbatim what I performed, obviously being able to sit down and write your, the requirements are different. You can take more time. You can spend more time in description. Mm -hmm. You don't have to hit laugh points at a certain cadence in order to keep (laughs) a live audience's attention in the same way. You can develop things more slowly and fill in more blanks, but mostly that story is as I told it on stage. Mm. What the experience of writing the book, I mean, the experience of writing the book was also totally new because I had never, I was never, I never developed the stories that far before I even sat down to write. Right. So the ones that appeared in the shows, I kind of, I knew all of the beats and I knew where they ended for the most part. They didn't change that much. But then they would suggest and remind me of other stories that had happened in my life that I could then write out. Mm. And then other topics related to either Western Massachusetts, which is where I spent a good portion of sort of my my young, I'm going to say my young adulthood, but in book terms, that means 13, 14 years old, some <laughs> of that. But, you know, like when I was in my 20s, Maine, where I'm, I'm you know, going into my 40s and, and soon 50s and then death. <laughs> and the, you know, and the metaphoric wilderness of middle age that connects to those two, 
you know, I could pull other stories out and sort of explore them even, and also had the freedom to do so without worrying that they necessarily be funny. Right. Mm. Because it wasn't a comedy show. This was some, something else, whatever it is. That brings up something very interesting because... I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I look forward to hearing what that is. So I think that I approached this book as I imagine a great many people did. It's John Hodgman. It's going to be funny. This is another... It's a humor book. And largely speaking, it is. This book is hilarious. Thank but you. But there's an essay close to the end uh, called So Thin is the Skin of My People. Yeah. That threw me for a loop in right. a way that redefined the book for me and and i as i watched sort of like the the critical press roll out and a bunch of people were like oh the funny stuff's good but i'm i'm worried or i'm not worried i'm interested in knowing about what it was like for you to make that shift and to decide i john hodgman funny man i'm actually gonna bear my soul and talk about something deeply serious well i mean first of all thank you for your words about that i'm i won't i mean you know, we, we know each other from Twitter and I enjoy the podcast, but I think you said something about it on on Twitter about that essay that really, I mean, I was very touched that it resonated with you because it was the piece that I, I you know, I was most concerned about yeah. being in the book in part tonally and in part because I thought my neighbors in Maine might murder me. <laughs> <laughs> and the piece, um, you know, I, I think it bears explaining to the very few number of people who have not yet read and bought my book, Vacation Land, available in paperback now. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> handsome paperback. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I agree. Uh, thank, uh, thank Aaron Draplin for the design. But, um, y- you know, it's a piece of, that, that circles around uh, a big secret. So my wife and I, my wife loves Maine more than any other place or person on earth and <laughs> dragged our family up there on many vacations many summers because she teaches and I'm self-employed and our our kids are unemployable and we would <laughs> <laughs> drag us up there to see her dad uh, quite a bit and always wanted to have a place there and um, thanks in large part to uh, television um, when a place became available a few years ago that we could afford we bought it in this small town that had been the home of uh, a, a very famous well-known writer that happened to be one of my wife's very favorite writers of all time. And we had no idea that this, that this town had, had been the home of this writer that who had written a lot about Maine mm-hmm. and this town. And that was because he was very pry, very pry and shy of it about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, blueberry syrup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was, uh, do not edit that out. I want that in the, in the podcast. Um, and uh, and and I was thinking a lot about privacy, and um, and at the same time, uh, the the I think it was the third summer we were there. Um, uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed by police in quick succession, and it, and though the Black Lives Matter movement had been developing, um, it it there were many many huge protests, mm-hmm. and uh, in in real life. Um, and then a weird 
sort of noxious counter protest online mm-hmm. right from people who felt that saying black lives matter means somehow that white lives matter less which is absurd and unseemly to complain about mm-hmm. and i i was in maine at this time um which is i think still true the you know statistically the whitest state in the united states very close three three way race with Vermont <laughs> and New Hampshire, yeah. <laughs> and to not and to not you know, to, uh, Portland, Maine, and Lewiston, Maine. There's a bit there's a big West African refugee community mm-hmm. uh, that is now a, a multi generational community of West African uh, people of people of West African descent in Maine. There are parts of Maine that are quite diverse, but where we are not particularly at right. all, even in among summer visitors, you know. And it, and living in New York, um, you can you kind of forget, you know the, the the benefit of living in a big city is you see other people. Mm-hmm. And one thing, and the benefit of being white is when you go to an all white place, it doesn't feel weird because <laughs> you're just seeing yourself, <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? But it yeah. really made me quite conscious of the fact that you know we have a lot of reckoning to do with race specifically and other issues. Um, of inclusivity in the United States, but if uh, all of that heartbreak was on my computer, mm-hmm. and if I closed my computer in Maine, it disappeared, and race could. I, I, it was the first time I appreciated the privilege of being able to turn off race, right, mm. as an idea, um, which is obviously people who are do not look like me cannot turn off, no matter almost no matter where they are, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so, and and what that has to do with. Uh, I felt that I needed to address that to some degree in the book. Um, I also had a story that, that, that I also had a story that sort of interwove with that idea and the house of the famous writer that lived in that town. And I knew they were connected somehow. And I knew that if I, if I told my, if I explored those feelings and, and included them in the book, that it might be terrible, that it might be very tone deaf and bad, and it may still be. I mean, I can't judge. Well, you liked it, but you're another white dude, so who knows? <laughs> um, in terms of talking about, specifically talking about this writer and this writer's house, it would be revealing a town secret right. mm-hmm. in a public way that an outsider, a recent transplant into a place is very attuned to who is from here and who is from away mm-hmm. might might feel a little bit grody and then also talking about some people i saw on instagram in a creepy lurky way might be rude Mm. but even when i was writing the the phony facts and the absurdist stuff you know you just know sometimes that you have like it has to be true on some level even Mm -hmm. the fakest joke has to resonate with some inner truth or some uh, some truthful reflection of your obsession and mm-hmm. i couldn't stop thinking about it and it just seemed unfaithful to my experience to not talk about it even within the context of a book that was otherwise ostensibly for hahas <laughs> right and the truth is that you know b- for better for worse uh i wanted to give you know, I wanted to be honest in this book in the same way in the other books. Like there are times when it gets a little less haha and a little mm-hmm. bit more mm-hmm. circumspect. Definitely. But like, you know, that's, that's all I, all I have to offer is my whole self. <laughs> right. 
And it seems like if I'm going to get people to pay money for it, I might as well give all of it. Right. And they can reject it or, or not. And, you know, some people some people liked that section. Some people did not like that section. Mm-hmm. Um, the only I'm I'm grateful. This sounds very defensive. And I guess it is. I'm grateful to say that the people who did not like that section tended to be other white dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. I mean, I think their point of view is absolutely valid. Right. But I think that there were a lot of, you know, the talking about privilege in this book was not where, not where anybody, including me, expected it to go. Right. Mm-hmm. But once you realize that it's essentially a story about a, you know, a, 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 a guy who has two summer homes, how can you not talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> Another essay from this book makes me think um, about the boat essay, A Little Beyond the Limits of Safe Travel. Yeah. Um, there's this... Thanks for knowing the names of these things. I don't remember the names. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, uh, there, there's this part where your family wins or like wins a boat. We win a... We we accidentally buy a boat. Yeah. A, not a yacht. No. It's a rowboat. It's a rowboat. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a lovely rowboat. And and like... Well, we, it's in an auction situation and we, we bid on it and... Um, and won. Somehow win. Yeah, and people seem... It was not a very competitive auction. <laughs> <laughs> but people still are a little put out by the fact that you guys... Or you're, but you cast yourself in this story, basically. There's this moment where you're like, what if this is something that happens in this town all the time? And they like do right. this every summer. Yeah, uh, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Like, so, so, there, so the boat had been built. I mean, you know, the, pardon me. You know, just to go back for a second, you know, it was it was our friend John Roderick who who pointed out when I was telling some of these stories for the first time, right. back announced me by saying, ladies and gentlemen, the the white privilege mortality comedy of John Hodgman. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say mortality. That was my ad. Sorry, that was my punch up. He said the the white privilege comedy of John Hodgman. And that was like, oh, right. That's what this is. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that and, and I think that that is sort of the 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 message of the book that m- might be accessible to people who do not have a summer home in Maine, which is, <laughs> you know, and pr- privilege is something you have without realizing it. And it's hard to figure, it's hard to know who you are a lot mm-hmm. of the time. And sometimes you keep these myths of who you are um, and who, who, you know, who you, who you wanted to be in your twenties or whatever. And you keep them going through your thirties and forties. And then you realize, oh, I said, no, no, I'm a, I'm an adult or I'm a dad or I'm a, I'm a failure or I'm a success or whatever it is. And like those moments of clarity where the, uh, the stories you tell about yourself fall away and you realize this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was sort of in one of those moments of clarity where m- my wife and I were so shook up about the fact like, Oh, we're not young anymore. Mm-hmm. And we live on this road with a bunch of retirees in Maine. This is us. This mm-hmm. is who we are. And our kids sensing this, just stopped talking to us for the rest of the summer. <laughs> like they smelled death on us <laughs> and, and my son wouldn't really play with me anymore. And our daughter would just bike down to the graveyard in town and she would go and visit the grave of that famous author who's there. And Hell yeah. I suppose dance on it I guess. <laughs> <laughs> because it's her turn now or whatever. And, and, 
And left to our own devices, we fulfilled our most loathsome Caucasian class destiny, which was we bought this boat. <laughs> so we bought we bought it by accident. It was this boat, this this peep, it's a peapod, which is a very traditional main rowboat that's pointed on both ends. So it looks like a peapod. It was built in the town by a famous local resident who is now dead. Mm-hmm. And it was for auction to raise money for a church. And everyone in town thought it was going to go for a lot of money. And because of that, we thought we would bid on it. And I forced my wife to make the opening bid on it just for fun. And then one and, and one person bid against her. And then she was really excited. She bid, uh, bid uh, that person and then no one else bid. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we own this boat that we have no business owning. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a boat. That we, I mean, it's on a trailer. We don't have a hitch. We can't get it back. Like we don't, <laughs> and we've never launched a boat before. We've never owned a boat before. We don't know what's involved in it. Even a rowboat, mm-hmm. and it's a piece of local history, right? And here we are, these goofballs from away, who just sort of like it's the worst. The thing that you don't want to be mm-hmm. is the the New Yorker who swans in and goes, "Well, I'll have it," <laughs> <laughs> and outbids everyone. But everyone was really nice about it. And they were like, you bought a Jim Steele Peapod, you know, for X amount of money. Read the book if you want to find out. Uh, You know, (laughs) good for you. What a bargain. And it went on for weeks. Everyone would point out, you're the people who bought that Peapod. Good for you. What a bargain. (sighs) We'd be rowing it through the harbor and they'd be like, <laughs> and it really began to feel like they were gaslighting us. Some, some, like the, the the town was playing some trick on us, and that maybe they had tricked us into buying the boat, and then they were going to fatten us up with compliments <laughs> until until the end of the summer when they would ritually murder us <laughs> and take the boat back, and and then in a sort of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery style, or, this would or like somehow a... make the corn, or, you know, the lobster. The, the lobster harvest would be good that year. <laughs> I was thinking more like hot fuzz. It's for the good of the, for the good of the. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah, right. Hot fuzz. The greater good. <laughs> yeah, for the greater good. For the greater good. Um, but I, I was curious if that, if you feel like you have a tendency to cast yourself in stories because of being a bookish person or, or someone who can't, because I know you're, you joke about it and you also talk about it very seriously in Vacation Land that you were a former literary agent. And that is. Pre- I was a former professional oh, literary agent. Right. Yeah. Uh, we all uh, cast ourselves in stories. I mean, I think that it's just a question of how conscious you are of the stories that you're casting yourself in, right? I mean, we, it, none, none of us goes through life without imagining that it's some narrative. Mm hmm. For me, it comes naturally because I'm a narcissist. And I've always, <laughs> always imagined that the story of John Hodgman is the most interesting story of all time. But, mm-hmm. you know, how would we go forward if we did not feel that there was some beginning, middle, and purposeful end to our life? I mean, it would take real nihilism to, and, and frankly, existential discipline to rid yourself of that delusion and why do you why would you bother to do it if you're really really an existentialist you know we're all you know rotten meat at the end so (laughs) hell yeah why not not tell a story about it yeah so i think that um you know the it there was something that happened fairly you know i was a literary agent largely because i liked telling stories and i liked reading stories i thought that i would be a writer but it seemed like a lot of work Mm mm-hmm 
and I enjoyed reading other people's stories, and I thought maybe I can just make some money off of people who are willing to do the work. <laughs> I mean, that's literally why I was going to do it, and you know, because I I like other writers and I like helping them, and it's, it's and if, and if I can get paid doing that, then I don't have to do it, right? Um, because it's hard. I mean, I think being a writer is a hard way to live, and most people who are not consciously writers or creative people of any kind are still telling stories about themselves, but mm -hmm. it's deep background stuff mm -hmm. for them. Do you know? And that might be where they, where they exist in their community, where they exist in their religion, where they exist in their families, you know, like those are the kind of stories. It only re was recently that a lot of people, like it, it came to me that a lot of people go through life without stopping to think about like what's happening here. Mm -hmm. you know, right. You know, who's this person? What role are they playing? Like what's the story in this situation. I mean, a lot of people live very happy and fulfilling lives that are unmediated by that kind of constant self narration all the time. I think it, it never occurred to me. <laughs> it would be so nice. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I've had the opportunity, uh, you know, to do some acting because of the TV stuff. And man, you guys, if if I were better at that and could just do that all the time, I would just that would be the greatest. <laughs> like to have someone else write a thing and then you just and then you just step in and yeah. you know, rather than make the connections and find the echoes and, and interrogate what you're doing in this situation and what what other people are doing in this situation. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know what kind of reader you are. Yeah. Not, but, not, not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I also am curious if uh, having been a literary agent affects your reading now. Yes, it does. Oh yeah, hang on, let me have a sip of this drink. Okay. <laughs> so, I, uh, I love, I love books. <laughs> <laughs> That's the quote. I really love, I really love the idea of books. <laughs> Yes. Um, sometimes books themselves aren't so great. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things when you look at a great bookshelf, like I have here in front of me, is you think about all of the work and time and effort that has pour, uh, been poured into, into these pages. Uh, every book, I mean, all of these books required huge investment of both time and insane levels of confidence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sometimes that confidence is natural and sociopathic sometimes that <laughs> level of confidence that everyone in the world wants to hear what you have to say right is sociopathic and i'm going to point at certain books up there uh -huh. <laughs> are these in any particular order just general alphabetical general alphabetical so i'm also pointing at um Oh, you don't have this person's book here. That's interesting. Oh boy. Sometimes that sometimes that confidence is sociopathic. You just feel the world deserves to hear what you have to say. Was it Ernest Hemingway? He's over here. No. Nope. Oh, no, no, damn. No. <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> and sometimes that confidence gets, you know, and I think most times that confidence gets ginned up because mm -hmm. you feel you have to say something and even though you don't know that people are going to you know, need to hear it or even should, you have to do it, right? Right. So in that sense, every book that's ever produced is noble. This this premise that every book is noble gets highly tested when you're working at a literary agency 
particularly if you're junior at the agency and an assistant and your job is to really go through the slush, as mm-hmm. they call it, the stuff that gets, you know, the, the, the letters and the manuscripts that just come in from the most hopeful people on earth. Mm-hmm. And you appreciate how many people want to write a book and or have written a book, I think, is what they really want to do, because that makes people feel that they've contributed somewhat to the story of life, you know, mm-hmm. to have gotten something out there. They're not they're not going to be forgotten. And a lot of those books are dumb and mm-hmm. terrible <laughs> and awful. And it's you know, we were talking at some point about going to the Strand bookstore and appreciating just how many books have been published and forgotten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you th- you know you think of how all the books that have been written but not published and forgotten, which you know doubles that easily if not triples it. Sure, reading manuscripts really became an exercise in a dual exercise in tedium and heartbreak. Mm-hmm. In that you know you have to say no to people all the time. It was reassuring to appreciate that you know when those things came through that that had something you remember oh yeah having something having some talent is pretty rare so if you've got some it's not as bad as you think like mm. it's easier to cut through i think than the the moldy books at the strand would suggest and actually get something read do you mm-hmm. know what i mean but there's you know reading books became the most psychologically damaging homework that i had <laughs> for 7 years and even before then, I was like, if I had to choose between, I mean, I loved, I loved Borges and I loved literary games personship and I loved all kinds of different books and, you know, mysteries and stuff. But even before then, I was like, if there's an X-Men, I'll read that instead. You know I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. maybe I'll, maybe I'll watch, maybe I'll watch Brass Eye or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so it's actually been a, uh, you know, it's now been almost you know it's been 18 years since i left that job and i would say only within the past 10 through discipline have i've really gotten back into reading wow. for pleasure and and truly just not and, and and part of the benefit of being older and not having to really prove anything to even myself anymore i can just read for pleasure like really read i won't say junk because it's not junk but reading procedural crime books was a huge part of my specifically reading the Parker series by Donald Westlake writing as um, yeah. Richard Stark mm-hmm. was, you know, a huge part of my post uh, post 2016 election recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just pure, you know, books and stories exist for a couple of different reasons in history. One is sort of to record history and the oral tradition, right? The other is to, promote uh, essentially morally instruct create mm-hmm. social cohesion by saying we're part of this tribe and these are the stories we tell these are our myths and these are our values that are encoded in these myths but then all the time throughout all of that it's just distraction like right. it's dark out there here we are by a fire let me tell you something that'll keep you focused here rather than think about what's out there in the dark right mm-hmm. and so those those parker books were for me incredible i mean they're at first, I thought it was just because they were. I mean, have you, have you read any of them? I haven't. No, I have. they're fun. Mm-hmm. I've only read a couple, but it's one of those that I feel like I could just always pick one up. Yeah, yeah, they're candy. Yeah. I mean, they're candy, and they're easy, and they're blunt, 
and the character that they're whose point of view it's told from is this blunt character named Parker, who is a, a an un, unrepentant career thief. He's a heister. He puts mm. gangs together to knock over banks and armored cars and anti-coin dealers and mm-hmm. junk. Mm-hmm. And he is brutal and he is uh, amoral and a true anti-hero, but you, you know, you're into him. I was like, why am I so into this guy? (laughs) And if, and at first I'm reading this going like, oh, this is fun because it's, it's so clumsy and blunt. Mm -hmm. But then Donald Westlake um, introduces later in the series, introduces other characters and will occasionally take a chapter in the book and tell it from that character's point of view. And you realize, Oh, this, he's not just a blunt writer. Like these other characters have incredible inner lives that are alert to feelings and emotions. And they feel like equally fully formed humans. The Parker character who who is, it's a third person book, but who is essentially the narrator of the books. This is not his style. This is not Westlake's style. This is a character that he created. And it is a, it is a portrait of a, a, essentially a sociopath. Mm. And I was like, now I know why I love these books. Because like, what would it be to have no feelings about now? <laughs> like right about now, I would enjoy not having any feelings. Yeah, and yeah. that would be nice. So that that's kind of where I am now as a reader. Do you want to talk about, we we have a section, what'd you buy? Did you Have you bought anything recently? Yes. So I just bought, I was at Greenlight Books uh, in on Fulton Street mm. here in Brooklyn. Yeah, because now you have to think. You have you to act- differentiate, yeah. Because there's another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I bought the the book of short stories, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky, by, by an author whose name I know, <laughs> by Leslie Neka Arima. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly um she is of nigerian descent Mm -hmm. uh, nigerian american living in minnesota i believe wow and it's a book of amazing short stories uh uh, largely about um uh, young women of nigerian descent or in nigeria uh and i am learning a lot about the nigerian civil war Mm -hmm. but through these intensely personal and ruefully humorous stories um, that are just beautifully written. Obviously, this is uh, not about a sociopathic uh, white male uh, bank robber. <laughs> uh, it's a very nice change of pace. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. I'm excited to read. I've had that on my shelf for a while. I'm I'm gonna bump super it up readable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's it. Like that is. Yeah. I really put a high credit on readability these days because. Um, you know, my my wife teaches uh, high school English at Stuyvesant High School, and um, she uh, she teaches a lot of hard books. And then she kind of made it her mission to read some really hard books. Mm-hmm. Middle March was her. Yep. And yeah. I've never I've never read it, and she, you know, that is like a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there are you know, periods in that where it's like I can't go on. Why am I? Why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, I don't know why you aren't either. Here's Cujo. It's right here. <laughs> you could put that down at any time. <laughs> yeah. But she did it. So I'm maybe if I maybe if I build up my skills enough. I'm sort of back <laughs> I'm in rudimentary training. I'm in I'm in reading rehab. Still. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You're uh... It's not that I could it's not like I didn't read books in the two thousands. It just was 
there was just this 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 feeling of uh yeah of homework to it that was no fun yeah and i think a lot of people homework homework reading is is always difficult yeah do you want to talk about something you yeah, bought? what'd you buy so this is not something that i bought sure. um at some point someone in my family did buy it my there's a little bit of backstory my uh uncles on my mom's side grew up in the 60s and they were huge into the emerging sci-fi community they knew robert silverberg and isaac asimov oh and like personally they knew them yeah they were hanging out at asimov's bolo type parties oh yeah and i've yeah. like i've heard these stories and they were like teenagers there's some i don't know the 60s were a weird time but uh, all of these books were in my grandmother's house she passed away maybe 15 years ago and I wasn't quite at a point in my life where I was conscious of like, man, I'm going to want all of these books. And I thought most of them were gone. I got a couple cool copies of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right. So I'm home uh, over Memorial Day weekend. And my mom is like, I found this box of books that's from your grandmother's house. And most of them were like moth-eaten and mildewy and terrible. But there is a first edition copy of Harlan Ellison's uh, alone against tomorrow oh okay which has repent harlequin in it it has i have no mouth and i must scream and it is like it is a beautiful first edition copy of this wow. book That's awesome. and i was like holy shit i can't so you sold it <laughs> yeah i sold it and uh i'm i'm moving to Maine. i'm buying a summer house in maine oh, fantastic uh, That's a beautiful story i'm really excited to read it though yeah. and especially to like i know it was my uncles at some point and i know that they probably were like hey harlan what's your new book so that's cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Christopher? Uh yeah, I I bought this book um well it was sent to us so I didn't buy it either. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh Tessa Moschweg's My Year of Rest My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Oh yes. Which is about a oh. a woman who decides to medically induce herself into a coma so that she can have a year off. I guess is, is it the plot fiction. Yes. Oh wow! I thought it was a memoir too, and then I started reading it, and I was like, "Wait a minute, is this, this is fiction?" Oh, I feel way better about her mental state. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that sounds cool. It's, it's, it sounds like something that. Speaking of like, I'll tell you what. Take a year you're, gonna have, you're gonna have the exact same experience. Just read the Parker novels. <laughs> <laughs> Should we close it out with a recommendation? Oh, yeah. Why don't we move yeah, to the wait other a minute. side? Here's some things that I got to talk about. Okay. Oh, yeah. We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. First of all, I, I'm looking for a recommendation. I presume you... I, have you read... Sick by Poetries to Cockpore yet? Oh, I haven't yet. I really like her writing and I really want to read that. So I'm recommending that to myself. Okay. Nice. Else. That's on my list. Okay. Now I'm looking around at this wonderful book uh, 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 book case and I'm going to recommend a book that I got in Belfast, Maine by Samantha Hunt, which is, I can't, I can't remember the title. Mr. 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 Splitfoot. Mr. Splitfoot. Mr. Splitfoot is a great book. Mm-hmm. Everyone should read that one. I got some uh, with some books up here by my by my uh, friend and uh, inspiration Heidi Julevitz. Mm-hmm. She's great. Uh, she's amazing. And if you want to read a little bit about the same town in Maine, check out the Folded Clock, uh, which was a great a great book of memoiristic essays that I love. Got some Neil Gaiman up there, of course. Love Neil Gaiman. Uh, Cujo by Stephen King. I see you got the you got Mr. Mercedes there. Mr. Mercedes is is. 
unbelievably good. Okay. Like it, you know, whatever, 60 books in, I was like, holy shit, you can do something new. Yeah. Mm. Oh, no, he's he's in, he, he's incredible. Keeps doing it. Yeah. Uh, well, there are other things I saw here. There was more, so many. So, <laughs> oh, you got my friend Liz Gilbert, The Signature of All Things, great book. Oh, and uh, you, have you had her on your show? N.K. Jemison, Nora Jemison? No, but I really want to. Oh, yeah. No. Everybody out there, read the fifth season, the first of the Broken Earth trilogy. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the one of the things that really rescued reading for me was um reading her reading her novels. Mm-hmm. And it was that that year of a couple of years ago when um I got invited to host the Nebula Awards in Chicago and I decided to read as many of the nom- novel nominees as I could. Yeah. And I, I read her, her, uh, her uh, Broken Earth trilogy and Leckie's uh, Ancillary Justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was incredible. Um, these are all science fiction fantasy, but both in different ways redefine both genres and create yeah. new ones. So wow. those, are, those are my recommendations. Yeah. And that was That's just like, list. those are big, long books. And I was like, I get it. Novel ideas, homework. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, nope, the greatest. Wow. You need to have. You need to have Nora on. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to recommend something? Do you want me to? Um, I can. I will recommend. Speaking of readable short stories, and also of vacationing in states that are not our own. Okay. Lauren Groff's Florida. Oh. She does not exactly make it a place that you want to go. No. Um. I feel like nobody who writes about Florida, Jeff Vandermeer too, it's like, that just seems like a terrifying, spooky place. Yeah. Uh, but it, I loved Fates and Furies a couple of years ago. And I, Florida, I doled out for myself. I would hide the book so that I would get a little bit of space between Novel? stories. Short stories. Short stories. Mm-hmm. There are All right. probably six short stories. I think it's five or six that have a character who is probably the same character, this unnamed mother of two boys living in Florida. Oh, yeah, I'll read this. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. Uh, it's it's just fantastic. Did yeah. you see the movie The Florida Project? Yes, I did. Best movie of the year. I loved mm. that movie. Willem Dafoe should have won an Academy Award. You know what? No. <laughs> <laughs> Disagree. He's an amazing actor. He was wonderful in that movie. I don't know who else, I don't remember who won that category who did win that probably you know what i'd give willem dafoe an oscar every day if i could i'm not saying you're wrong <laughs> oh i see what you, yes but yes, yes, in yes. that movie he was the most actory of the actors yeah <laughs> yeah and that's true as far as i i don't know how the performances are you know the the woman who plays the mother in that was someone that they found on instagram yeah the child the children are who act in that are obviously children mm-hmm and I'm like, how did they get these? How did this uh, this director get these performances? And then I read, oh yeah, well you made that movie on his uh, uh, his iPhone yeah. at mm-hmm. one point. So I was like, oh, well, that's how you do it because you basically have a hidden camera. Right. right. People forget that it's there. This movie shot on 35 millimeter film. <laughs> I do not know how he got it. like because yeah. those are big rigs. That, oh yeah, they're there in your face when you're doing it. So I know a little bit about acting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm gonna recommend. This is like a. This is like the candiest candy book, but it's uh, Charles Soule's uh, The Oracle. And it's about this 20-year-old gig bassist. It's a little bit, it's such a, 
It's a 20 year old what? Gig bassist. You know, he, oh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And uh, he wakes up one morning with 108 predictions. It's the, it's the, it's the gig bass economy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dad. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, it's uh, He wakes up one morning with 108 predictions uh, about the next three years. And they start, he tries just predicting a couple things and they start coming true. And so he um, he puts up a website and sells off the predictions to... Oh, cool. And then it goes off from there of like not having a private life. And, and it's a little bit of wish fulfillment of what if, <laughs> I, what if I, a white male, was the most important man in the world? <laughs> what if I, a bassist, could make money? <laughs> <laughs> Both fine. <laughs> that fantasies. is truly a fantasy. <laughs> um, and it's a... But it's very thought out and it's a very interesting sort of um privacy and what what we, it looks like when we're, we're how close we are to a brink of destruction and how and how we need to heal our it's, divides it's candy you said it is candy the oracle yeah the oracle and then i'm going to recommend one other thing it's a poetry collection uh by no, this woman goodbye. sue goyette how do i get out of here <laughs> and it's called brief in- reincarnations of a girl Brief and, reincarnations of a girl, and it's about a, um, it's about this court case. It's not so, about anything. It's poetry. It's a real court <laughs> case uh, that tr- was translated into poetry about this, um, this bipolar, this this two year old that was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and then medicated to death. Oh my Whoa. goodness! And it's about the court case. And it, it all takes place in the courtroom, but it's collected poetry. Wow! Wow! Yeah. All right. This is poetry that I will allow. I, like poetry. I, don't, I don't know why I'm being a jerk about poetry. I love poetry. Of course I do. So yeah, that's my recommendation. Cool. And I have the other recommendation is, of course, John Hodgman's Vacation Vacation Land. Land. Vacation Land. And available now. It's a fantastic collection. Of it's really good. Essays. Thank and you very much. It will soothe. It will soothe you. You'll yeah. either find humor, you'll find pathos, maybe you'll find both. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? Uh, look, we focused on we focused on the privilege uh, heavy duty stuff that's in the book, but that's like 2 seconds. Yeah. yeah. There's also the rest of it is just laughs, building rock sculptures. Yeah, laughs and laughs. <laughs> the, the best reveal of marijuana <laughs> in a book ever. Ooh, well, that, let's put that on the cover. <laughs> Scott Press. I uh, just I have been contacted by a by a popular marijuana news website for an interview. So. Oh, very nice. Uh, Vacation Land available now at wherever you buy your books. You guys, uh, truly, the nice things you said about my book were really meaningful to me. Uh, and I'm not going to lie; it's the reason I'm here. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I since then have become a great fan of the podcast. And uh, thank you very much for having me on. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, we're so glad we can make this happen. And all of you out there in listener land, please uh, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash SMDB if you'd like to support us. or just, SMDB. Or leave us an iTunes review. Just tweet at us, email us, us. Yeah, we yell like, at us on the street. Yeah, We like all less, forms of... Less of the yelling. Uh, I mean. uh, and yeah, we'll see you all soon. Bye. 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 Well, you know, there's you have a
a sign there from the Strand, and it reminds me of, you know, when I moved to New York and would go to the Strand, and I would just look around and realize, oh, man, there are a lot of books that have been published. Mm -hmm. Every every one of these books was somebody's dream, and look, they're all being sold off for a nickel. (laughs) Oh, my God. That is a depressing thought. 